Uh, we've got our second Bible reading now. Uh, so it's Genesis 41. It's a long one and it repeats itself a little bit. So we're going to do the do some of it and um, I'll fill in the blanks as we go. But let's do uh, 1 to 16, verses 1 to 16 to begin with. So Genesis 41, 1 to 16. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servant, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said that, uh, said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Uh, Pharaoh then tells Joseph the dream. We're going to skip down to verse 28 and pick it up after, he's, after Pharaoh has told Joseph the dream. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, anyone in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Thanks, Ollie. Now we will be covering two chapters today, which means the sermon will be doubly long. You laugh, but next week we've got four chapters. Uh, but it will be good uh, during the week. Uh, read ahead, read the four chapters, because we won't be reading all four chapters in the service next week. And hopefully you did have the chance to read uh, these two chapters before this week. Uh, but let's turn to God uh, once again and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this part of your scripture, as we consider the life of Joseph and how you worked and ordained things, uh, do teach us, Lord, what we are meant to understand of who you are and how we are and what we're like in your world. And we pray, Lord, that from this story you'll build our faith in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you may have heard of the story of a mother and two young boys, Josh and Matt. Six and four years old. Two boys, mischievous boys, naughty boys, your typical boy. And these were your practical jokers. They loved to cause trouble, have some fun just to have a laugh. But they were causing a lot of trouble for their mother. The mother was, you know, up to her neck with her boys. And so she tried to discipline them with no success and, and she was just exasperated. And so she one day called for her minister to help out. Maybe the minister can talk to my two sons to get them in line. Now the minister agreed. The minister went over to their place. And this minister was one of those huge guys, big guys, threatening size. And so first he sat down Matt, the younger brother. Sat him down. He looked Matt in the eye. And he knew all the trouble that Matt was getting into, all the practical jokes he was playing. And with his deep, booming voice, he said to Matt, Where is God? Now Matt, four years old, he was terrified. His jaw dropped. Silence. Now the minister looked at him again with a deeper voice, Where is God? Now Matt, pale white, speechless and terrified. The minister now looked him in the eye, pointed his finger at him, Where is God? Matt bolted out. Scared, terrified of this minister, went to his closet, closed the door, sat down, shivering and terrified. Now when his older brother found him, went to him and asked, what's the matter? What happened? Matt, gasping for his breath, he said, we're in big trouble now. God is missing and they think we did it. <laughs> now you may have heard of that story. It's a funny story, isn't it? But I want you to imagine for a moment, what would life be like if God was really missing? What would life be like without God at all? Where God is nowhere to be seen. Just imagine that for a moment, where there is no God in the picture whatsoever. You see, I think sometimes in life it feels like that where God is so far, so distant, it's like God has gone. In fact, in one of my growth groups this past week, one shared, one of our older members shared how there was this time of grief where she felt, did not feel God's presence at all. 
couldn't even pray. At our staff meeting this past week, we reflected on Psalm 88. And if you know the psalm, Psalm 88 is one of those psalms of lament and anguish. This psalm is complaining to God and some of the things this psalm has said. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Who put me there? You put me there, God. This psalm is, why, O Lord, do you reject me? And hide your face from me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Now that last verse you may be familiar in Simon Garfunkel's song. You know, hello darkness, my old friend. That's where it comes from. And sometimes in life it feels that way, where God has gone missing. Where is God, we cry out. And I suspect even amongst us this morning, that may be the thought that is crossing our minds where is God in my life it just feels like he's not there with me he's not there when I'm in pain and I'm in sorrow it's very easy to imagine how Joseph may have been feeling that way as we've been considering his story over the last few weeks I mean can you imagine what he would have been feeling when he was betrayed and hated and abused by his older brothers so much to be sold off into slavery, he would have been questioned, where is God in all of this? Where is justice? Or even last week, when he only did the right thing and fled from the advances of Potiphar's wife, he was righteous. He was above reproach. But what happened? He was thrown into the dungeons for it. And so you might, might be thinking, Joseph, well, he, he would be questioning, when, oh God, would you make things right? You see, two questions we'll be considering today. Where is God? And when, oh God, will you make things right? Two existential cries that comes from the heart of all humanity. And so where is God? How would you answer that question? Well, the answer is, God is always right there with his people. That is the profound truth, the glorious truth of the Bible. It's the promise of God that is true for every believer, for every Christian. You see, God does not just stand at the end of our life to meet us there when we cross the finish line. God is with us every step of the way, whether we're walking or running or limping or crawling. God is there with us. It's one of the best things of knowing God. He is always present. We are never alone. And Joseph, he knew that, didn't he? He got to experience the very presence of God, even in prison. Last week we saw at the end of chapter 39. We read, have a look with me, verses 20 and 21. But while Joseph was there in prison, do you see those words? The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And you see how knowing that shaped Joseph's attitude while he was in prison. Knowing God's presence with him shaped how he lived, shaped what his character was like, shaped his attitude. I mean, if I've been falsely accused and thrown into prison for it, I wouldn't be too happy. Not at all. I would see myself falling into despair, 
perhaps even wallowing in self-pity. I feel so sad for myself. But you see what Joseph was like when he was in prison. He was not meant to be there. But what was he like? You see, when the cupbearer and baker were thrown into that prison with him, what did Joseph do? Very subtle. What did he do? We read, he attended to them, which meant he served them. He cared for them. He noticed that they had a bad night's sleep. He was so conscious of how they were, so concerned for them. He wasn't self-absorbed in his own corner in the prison. And just one question he asked them that morning changed the whole course of his prison experience. What did he say to them? Why are your faces so sad? Why are you downcast? Is everything okay? You see, we, we can't even learn something from Joseph at this point. You know, if he was wallowing in self-pity, if he was sulking in prison, and he was only concerned for himself and completely unaware of everyone else in prison, he would have missed out on the opportunity to be kind, to show compassion, to serve. You see, he didn't wait around for his life to be sorted, to get all in order before he showed concern for those around him, before he started serving. And I think we've got something to learn there, even now as Christians. Because as we reflect on our own lives, I wonder how many of us, we just sit around because I'm wallowing in my own problems. I feel self-pity. And I want to get my life all sorted before I start thinking about others before I start caring or before I start serving. And I hear it often enough. I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy. Work is too busy for me. I mean, if you're good at your job, of course it's going to be busy. Who's not busy at work? It's all too stressful. Life is too hard. Life is not fair. I just don't have time for anyone else. And I'm sitting on my hands feeling self-pity. And I like the attention of others, but I give no attention to anyone else. You see, I think there's, I've had quite a few pastoral conversations with some of our younger folks. And there's just this sense of self-pity. And I say, you know, there's a type of self-pity that's in fact quite sinful because it's an attitude of just me. And so for us to consider, do we actually make an effort to get to know even those sitting around you now? Because if we don't know, we won't be able to ask the question Joseph asked. Why are you so sad? Is there anything I can do for you? Or do we see, you know, church, we just come and go and that is it. And we miss out on that opportunity to love, to care, to show compassion. I mean, just this past week, just reflecting on this passage and reflecting on those in our church, I wonder... What is God teaching us? And I wonder whether there is that sense where, you know, some of us may be feeling a bit, bit sad and unconcerned, but I reckon in the kindness of God we see many marvellous examples in our church where those who continue to give of themselves, those who cook, those who call up, those who visit, are those with their own struggles, but they continue to serve even in the darkness and the pits of life. In fact, often on my phone calls and visits to some of our members, I go with the intention, let me come to care for you. Let me express my concern for you. I'm, I'm the minister after all. 
But what I do find with these members, they do more caring of me than I do for them. And so I think even this little point here, it's not the big point, but this little point, we've got something to learn from Joseph here. Do we wait until life is stored before we open up our eyes and see that perhaps even the person next to us is doing it tough? Instead, we should be remaining productive, fruitful, useful to God, whether times are good or whether times are bad. In fact, this past week I went for a walk with one of the older members of our church and I was so encouraged by what he said to me. He's far older than I am, far wiser than I am. And recently he experienced a difficult season of life and experienced and still going through grief. But he said something along the lines of, I still want to be productive for God, however many years God grants me. I mean, isn't that encouraging? High or low, I'm conscious of those around me and how God might use me. Well, of course here, Joseph... He was acting that way. He was behaving that way because he knew God's presence with him. Now at this point, Joseph would have had no idea what would come of that simple question. He simply asked, why are your faces so sad? Now of course, from our perspective, we could see it was no accident that he was right there in the right place meeting those two people who had that dream. It it, it was God's plan all along. And we read they were deeply distressed by these dreams. In fact, it seems like they were more distressed by the dreams than being in prison itself. And so we read in verse 8 now. They say, we both had dreams, but there is no one to interpret them. Now you might be wondering, well, what's the big deal? We all dream all the time. We, We have dreams and there's no big deal. But I guess we need to understand in the ancient Near East, dreams always carried a deeper significance and often used to predict the future. That was their superstitious culture. Now, this does not mean that we try to interpret dreams today. I mean, last night I had a pretty fascinating dream that I still remember. We're not meant to try to interpret dreams, though, of course... God can use dreams, can't he? And we do hear stories of how God used dreams to bring Muslims to come to know Jesus Christ. Fascinating stories. And that's because the realm of dreams does not lie outside of God's control and God's sovereignty. Even when we're sleeping, God is master. However, we cannot read this story or take this to mean that God must speak to us through dreams. The means by which God has promised to speak to us is through his word about his son. That's God's promise. Now you may have heard this before, but if you want to know what God says to you, how do you find out? You read his word. You read the scriptures. If you want to hear God speak out loud to you audibly, you just read his word out loud. That's how you hear God speak to you. You see, God promises to speak to us only through his word. But of course, God can do whatever he wants. He's God. And so how did Joseph respond to the cupbearer and the baker? Well, he responded rightly. Verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God. God is the one who's the revealer of mystery. He's the sovereign one. I mean, Joseph could have said here, Don't share with me the dreams. I mean, the last time I had a dream, it didn't go too well for me. 
But Joseph was there as an agent for good. He had God's presence. And so he interprets their dreams. The cupbearer first, verse 13 now. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position and you'll put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. Now you might say that would have been quite obvious from the dream. He's the cupbearer after all. But do you notice how specific he was? Three days. He didn't say sometime in the future. He didn't say several days. He was specific and only that can come from God. And in a sense, he was putting himself on the line. Because you can imagine those three days of anxious waiting. Will it happen? Will the interpretation God give me take place? Will I be shown to be a fraud or will I be a true prophet? Well, it was a good interpretation for the cupbearer. It was good news. And now the other guy listening in, he must be thinking, well, this is good stuff. My turn. Interpret my dream. Well, the baker gets his dream interpreted. And perhaps, again, you don't really need to be a rocket scientist to guess that this is not going to go out and go well. I mean, the dream is about birds eating the stuff off their head. Sounds a little bit like, if you're old enough, Alfred Hitchcock's movie, The Birds. Remember that? If you were alive in the 40s or something like that? Well, it sounds a little bit like that. It's not too good. And Joseph says it as it is. He tells the baker as it is, doesn't sugarcoat it, doesn't avoid telling the hard truth. And even that there, I think, is an important lesson there. Now, for Christians, especially when it comes to the gospel, there's no easy way to say this, we say to our friends, but there is a heaven and there is also a hell. That's the truth. That's just the way it is. Joseph speaks the truth as confronting as it was. Verse 19 now. Within, within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now, do you notice the play on words there? The cupbearer, Pharaoh, will lift up your head, and to the baker, Pharaoh will lift off your head. Now, if you're Joseph at this moment, you've been given that interpretation, you're probably thinking now, well, this has to be God. God is certainly with me, and this is my ticket out. God is with me. And so he pleads to the cupbearer, verse 14. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. And then after three anxious days, the cupbearer's head was lifted up. And the baker's head was lifted off. And then we read the poignant verse, the last verse of that chapter, verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Now imagine if you were Joseph at that point. You, you would not have any clue at all that you were forgotten. We only read this because it's written down for us to read. But if you were in Joseph's shoes, you would not have known you were forgotten. And so you're in the cell, and every footstep you hear coming down the dungeon, you're thinking, they must be coming for me. The, the cupbearer has told, told me to Pharaoh, I'm free, this is it. But then those anxious days of waiting, the anticipation stretch into days, and the days stretch into weeks, and then the weeks stretch into months. 
And then slowly your, your hopes just wane down. Your expectations crushed. And you're left there thinking, their dreams came true. When will my dream come true? And then you resign yourself to thinking, I think the cupbearer forgotten me. Now at this point, you can't help but ask that question again, isn't it? Where is God? Where is God? Has God really abandoned me now? Well, those months stretched into years. And the question now is no longer for Joseph, where is God? But when, O God? When, Lord, will you make it right? When will you remember me? And then we read verse 1 of chapter 41. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Now, I reckon after reading that verse, we know where this story is going. But you have to ask yourself, why two full years? Why that long? Why not just three days or three weeks or three months? Why did God take his time? And no doubt we have all experienced what it's like to wait and to wait longer than we wanted to wait. We know what that feels like, don't we? You know, waiting for the result of the exam, waiting for the medical appointment, waiting for the results of the medical test, waiting for surgery. We know what it's like to long to wait, and we only can wait, but God makes us wait even longer. The legal issue that won't go away, still waiting for it to be resolved, waiting for the kids to grow up. You see, we live in a society now where we just want things instantly. We want it now. We're not very good at waiting at all. I mean, I think we used to be better because back when I was younger, when we wanted to do some research for some assignment or essay, it wasn't just type a few words on Google and there you are, Wikipedia, there's your essay, just copy and paste. It wasn't like that at all. It was going to the library, looking up Britannica, the encyclopedia, looking for the books, photocopying what you can, 10% only, before it becomes illegal. And I remember the days of when internet first came. It was dial-up internet. Boy, was it slow. But it wasn't slow back then. We've become very bad at waiting. So why did God make Joseph wait? Well, how do you learn patience? How do you learn to build that character of patience? The only way you learn patience is by being patient. Pretty simple, isn't it? The only way you learn patience is by being patient, and often it is through difficulties, through hardships, through disappointments. Those of us who are parents, we would know this, I'm sure. Parenting, it's hard. It's very hard. It changes as the kids grow up, and we've seen this change as, as we parent our ones. When our kids were young, parenting was physically tired. Now that they're older and 12 hours are teenagers, parenting is emotionally tired. And that's because not because they're just running around and causing a muck, but because now they face their own disappointments. They face their own setbacks. They have to navigate through friendship issues. And as a parent, what can you do but to be with them, to speak to them, to pray for them, to direct them to Christ. But as a parent, what we do is we do trust that this is in fact God's way 
of building patience in our children. Disappointments, getting them to wait longer than they like. And that was certainly the case for Joseph. You see, God works in his own time frame. God is never early, nor is God ever late. Just reflect on that. God is never early, nor is God ever late. You see, we read the story of Joseph in only a few chapters, but it's been already 13 years since he was sold by his brothers. 13 years. That's, that's a lot of our life, waiting. I mean, for some of us, little ones, it's more than half our lifetime. But God's timing is always best. And so we get to this 13th year. Pharaoh finally has his dream, and it's a distressing dream. We heard it in the kids' talk. Seven ugly cows eating seven fat cows, and they look as ugly as before. Seven thin heads of grain swallowed up by seven healthy full heads. And those dreams just troubled him and unsettled him and reduced him, the most powerful man in the land, to a troubled mess. I mean, there was no one else in the kingdom that could help him. All the wise men, all the magicians had nothing good to say. I mean, you wonder, those magicians, they make up stuff all the time. Spin doctors, but yet they had nothing good to say. Nothing at all to say. And you have to wonder whether God has something to do with that. That in the sovereignty of God, God silenced all those wise men. In fact, John Calvin, the reformer, he said, The Lord so strikes dumb the wicked workers of deceit that they cannot even find a specious explanation of the dreams. Until the cupbearer remembered. And so Pharaoh sent for Joseph straight away. And now for Pharaoh to do that required a fair bit of humility from him. For him to be the most powerful man in the land, to listen to a prisoner, or he was just terrifyingly desperate, or both. Well, he calls for Joseph, and then verse 15, he says, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And so how did Joseph, J Joseph respond? I mean, this was his moment, wasn't it? He was from prison, the pits of the nation. Now he's standing before the most powerful man in the nation. This was what he's been waiting years for. He could have thought, well, this is my moment. This is it. My time has come. I can interpret the dreams. Tell me. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you all about it. I did it for the cupbearer and the baker. They both came true. I'm your man. But he didn't say it like that, did he? Instead, we learn something again of the beautiful character of Joseph. We've already seen his obedience to his father. We've already seen how he was above reproach in his character before Potiphar's wife. We already saw how willing he was to serve in prison. And now even more clearly, we see his complete, humble and utter dependence upon God. Verse 16. Four words. I cannot do it. He's now standing before the, the most powerful man in the land. I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And if you think about what he just said there, I cannot do it. 
That must be the attitude of all believers. That must be the attitude of all Christians. I cannot do it. I cannot serve unless God enables me. I cannot succeed unless God blesses me. I cannot, but God can. And so Joseph here, he shows the fertility, the futility of all of Pharaoh's wealth and power, the, the folly of all the wise men and his royal courts. Though it seemed like they had everything, they had nothing at all. And Joseph interprets the dream for him. Seven years of abundance, abundance followed by seven years of severe famine. And we see how gifted of an administrator he was. Great policies he put in place, he was given wisdom by God. And Pharaoh recognized, recognized well, who else has the Spirit of God but you? And so now finally, after 13 years of waiting, Joseph rose to become Prime Minister of the land. From rags to riches, from slavery to freedom, from prison clothes to royal robe. Now we don't know at all whether Joseph, during those 13 years, he cried out, When, O oh God, when will it happen? But you can just imagine, can't you, that he will be 13 years. But what we're meant to see here is that in God's perfect timing, in God's own time frame, God did so. Not merely for Joseph's sake, not merely for the sake of Egypt, but for the sake of his own name. For the sake of the covenant promises he made, God will establish a people for himself and he will do it. And so that is our story, the story of this passage. And it does feel finally we can see where God is going with this. It almost feels like now the story can end. It's like the happy ending. And I suspect some of us reading this, we might be at least thinking, well, I do hope that as I reflect on my life, that it will be like Joseph's life. That his story will be somewhat reflected in my story. Maybe in God's timing. I too will be exalted. I too will succeed in my relationships, in my studies, in my work, in my life's pursuit. I hope my story is a little bit like Joseph's story. I wonder how many of us reading this story would think that. However, this is where we need to be a little bit careful to not too quickly identify ourselves as Christians with the heroes of the Old Testament with Joseph or Moses or King David, and merely think, as long as I'm patient like Joseph, God will elevate me. As long as I'm courageous like David, God will look out for me. We're not meant to think that way when we come to stories like this. And that's why if you're part of one of our growth groups in church, you'll see that in our growth group Bible studies, there's now a section when we study the Old Testament, a section called Biblical Theology. And that's because... How we're meant to understand this part of Scripture is to understand this part of Scripture as part of the whole story of Scripture, and that is God's salvation plan as fulfilled in Jesus Christ, looking forward for fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here. Genesis is moving forward, finding fulfillment in Jesus. And I hope you've been seeing that already each and every week. We're looking at Genesis. We don't see Jesus mentioned Anywhere at all, do we? 
but we see the colors of the gospel. And so when we consider this story, we see the colors of the gospel. Because if we're anywhere in this story, we're more like the cupbearer or the baker, who in a sense, two people represent the whole of humanity with two distinct destinies, one to life and one to death. And the difference was Joseph, both deserving of prison, of death, but one shown kindness. The king pardoned him. And don't we see there, in a sense, a pattern, a color of the gospel? It must bring to mind which other two people, one to life, one to death. It does bring to mind the two criminals beside Jesus, representing the whole of humanity, one to life and one to death. And the difference was Jesus, who in a sense, more than Joseph, could not only tell their future. Joseph was able to interpret the dreams, but Jesus, who was greater than Joseph, in promising them a future. And so when the criminal asked Jesus, we see that language, we see it here as well. When the criminal next to Jesus asked, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, Jesus did not forget like the cupbearer, but promised him the future. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And so just as Joseph in this story was elevated from the pits of prison to lord over Egypt, so Jesus was elevated from the darkness of the tomb to be Lord of the universe. You see, we see a pattern of the gospel. The whole of humanity, but two destinies. And the difference is Jesus. And so how does that affect us today? What does it mean for us? Well, what it means is that because of Jesus who promises that future. When we find ourselves a bit like Joseph in the seasons of life where it is unbearable, where it is difficult, where we cry out it's just unfair, and it feels like we're in the pits, it's dark and gloomy and we cannot see the sky from all the fog, our heart is overwhelmed and heartbroken, and our life feels like it's falling apart. And our pillow is soaked with tears. And we cry, where is God? And we cry, when, O oh God? We might even say the words of the psalm, O oh Lord, do you reject me? And do you hide your face from me? I mean, that's the cry of Christians even today. It's the cry of believers for, for every, from every century. In fact, there was an English minister, Joseph Parker, he was the minister of City Temple from 1874. He was a brilliant preacher. He was a great minister of the word. He cared for his congregation well, but he was so honest before God when he was in the pits. So open about what he felt. In his own autobiography, at the age of 68, he said he never once had any religious doubt but when his wife died, his faith collapsed. And this was what he said. In that dark house, I became almost an atheist. 
For God has set his foot upon my prayers and treated my petitions with contempt. If I had seen a dog in such agony as mine, I would have pity and helped the dumb beast. Yet God spat upon me and cast me out of out as an offence, out into the waste wilderness and the night black of starless. I mean, he cried out, where is God? When, O oh God? And what's God's answer? Well, because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, what is true for him, what was true for him is true for every believer. Where is God? He's always with his people. By his spirit. When, O oh God, will you do what you'll do? Well, in his perfect timing, in the fullness of time. And even if we ever forget, we can trust that God will never forget us. That is the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that even in the story of Joseph, we can see that you are sovereign. You're always present with your people. And in the fullness of time, you will bring about your good purposes for those who love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.